0: Maybe the terrorist thinks death is a blessing. You know, he takes out innocent people and he thinks he's got this big reward waiting for him according to the Quran. Or maybe the politician who advocates abortion, they argue death is a blessing because now your problem's gone. Or those who argue for euthanasia, now the person who's suffering, he's out of misery. But for most people, death is not a blessing, it's just the opposite.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study of the book of Revelation, and last week we began a message entitled, God's Last Call to be Saved. Our passage is from Revelation 22, verses 16 and 17. This passage, among other things, affirms Jesus' lineage from one of the twelve tribes of Israel. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy from the book of Genesis looks at which tribe gave us our Redeemer Messiah. So which of the
0: 12 sons will the Messiah come through? Well, fast forward to Genesis 49. By the way, when when God meets Moses in Exodus 3, he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of this marvelous covenant that God made. Genesis 49, if you remember, God has already renamed Jacob Yitzrael. He has 12 sons, but to which son will the promise of the Messiah be passed? Well, Jacob, he's sick. He's on his deathbed. And one by one, we are told in verse 1, and Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Now, as you read this chapter, it contains blessings given to each son, along with prophecies that deal with the last days. Three times in verse 28 of this chapter, we're told that Jacob's words were a, blessings to his, a blessing to his sons, but they're more than a blessing. There is a prophecy. Remember, prophecy is history pre-written. And he goes all the way to the last days, to the final days in human history. This is the first of 14 times the expression, the last days, is used in the Old Testament. And in each occasion, it's connected with the Messiah and his coming to the earth. Now, we're told in verse 2, gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Jacob is going to give a prophetic blessing to each of his sons. And what is remarkable is that though the Bible says his eyesight is dim, his body is worn out, his mind is crystal-clear. He recalls, of course, each son's name. He recalls their history, what they had been like, and what plans God has for them. Listen to Yitzrael. He uses his covenant name that God had given him after he had become no longer self-centered, but God-centered where he was broken. Listen to Israel, your father. He is saying, what I'm about to tell you is not from my clever, ambitious nature, but it's from the new man that God has made me. And our interest, again, is trying to learn which of the sons does God carry the covenant blessing on? Well, look in verse 8. Judah, you are whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah had prevailed. He had some problems in the beginning. He became a godly man. And so leadership is given over his brothers, his enemies, and over his father's children. And prophetically, there's a whole sermon in this, and I have one on it if you're interested. The Messiah will come through the tribe of Judah, and there'll be three groups of people that will acknowledge the lordship of the Messiah, the Jews, his brothers according to the flesh, the Gentiles, who have constant hostility towards him, and we will see even at the end of the time, all of the nations, meaning all the goyim, all of the uh, Gentile nations of the world will go against Jesus. And the church, his father's children. Judah is a lion's whelp, verse 9. You know what a whelp is? It's the young of a, a dog or a wolf or a lion. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, it's technically feminine in Hebrew, who shall rouse him? Now, the ESV actually does a great job. Usually they, ESV is a great translation, but they really pick up the fine nuance here. Let me read the ESV. Rarely do they supersede the NASB, but they do here. The ESV captures the fine nuance of the Hebrew here. It says, Judah is a lion's cub. That's what a whelp is. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. It's feminine. Who dares rouse him? So Jacob compares Judah, notice, to a lion's cub, a lion, and a lioness. No one is going to challenge a lion's cub with all of its new strength or a lion who is king, much less a lioness who's going to protect her young. And Judah is telling Jacob that his people would be the royal lion. As the lion is king among the beasts, no one is going to tamper with Judah. And so the Spirit of God is prophetically beginning to unfold further. And again, this is a sermon in itself, and I have it, and I walk through all the fine points, but I'm just trying to give us the broad strokes this morning. Praise and preeminence should have been given to Reuben, but Reuben didn't get it. Why? Because he gave it up for a half hour of sex. So God gives it to Judah. The scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet. Until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is one of the titles for the Messiah. Every Jew recognizes that. Until Shiloh comes. That's why it's capitalized, too, in your Bible. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh is the Hebrew word for rest. From the same word comes the word shalom, translated peace. One is coming, the Prince of Peace, who, of course, the New Testament reveals is going to disarm another lion. A lion who prowls about seeking someone to devour. And of course, Paul says he will make peace through the blood of his cross and he will disarm that lion. And during Shiloh's kingdom, when Messiah reigns on the earth, he will bring peace. And so we've already studied from Isaiah and from Revelation when Messiah comes, he will rule the world with a rod of iron. Now, Judah had four children. So it goes to Abraham. There's a reason to this madness. Stay with me. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. He's got four kids. Which of the four? Well, as you follow the track, through one of these four, God affirms that one known as Jesse would bring the Messiah. You can go home and read 1 Samuel 16 if you want. One of Judah's sons has a relative down the line known as Jesse, and Jesse lives in a little town called Bethlehem. And he, of course, has eight sons. Well, which of the eight sons are going to be the one through whom the Messiah will come? Well, let me just read it to you. Second Samuel 7, the prophet Daniel is told to go speak to King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. That's never happened. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. That's never happened. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over you, my people Israel, I will give you, he's speaking prophetically, rest from your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete, when you lie down with your fathers, when you're dead, David, what am I going to do? I'm going to raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So to Judah, the great-grandson of Abraham, an explicit pledge is made that the promised ruler, the Messiah Shiloh, will come from him. And Samuel goes to Jesse's home. God does not see as man sees. And so out of the eight kids, he picks the least likely, David. And David then is promised in 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah, one is going to sit from his loins who will sit on the throne forever. Now, that background is assumed back here in Revelation. So go back to Revelation 22 and verse 6. You see, the Revelation is a challenging book. I told you when we started that of the 404 verses in the Revelation, some 300 of them have direct uh, references to the Old Testament. But never once does he say, well, Moses said, or Isaiah the prophet said. It's like a mosaic. It's all woven together beautifully, and you have to dig it out. And I think God had a reason for doing that. Because when you do dig it out, you just like never forget it. It grips you, and God wants it to grip you because he wants to change us from it. And so here he is. He is speaking uh, of of the Messiah here uh, in in the book of of Revelation and what he is going to do through the Messiah. Look again of what God says here in uh, verse 16 of Revelation 2. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David and the morning star. Now, that's an interesting statement. This is, by the way, the thing that got Jesus in trouble with the leaders of his day. He argued for his pre-existence. He said, before Abraham was, I am... That ever before Abraham came into view, I existed long before Abraham. He was claiming to be the eternal God. Why are you stoning me for these good works I do? No, but because you who are just a man, they said, are making yourself out to be God. And so when he says, I am the root and the descendant of David, every reader in the first century knew the implications of that. They knew what the history behind that was. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons, Judah, David, Messiah. They understood the inference behind it. He is the root of David, and notice he's also the descendant of David. How can you be both the root of David and the descendant of David? You can only be the root of David if you existed before David. And you can be only the descendant of David if you as God became a man. And so Jesus, who is eternal, for there was never a time when he was not, left the splendor of heaven and he becomes a man through the lineage of David. I am the root and the descendant of David. That is only possible if he is both fully God and fully man. The eternal God predates David. And yet, just as the prophets had written, he would come through the line of David. Notice also, he identifies himself here in verse 16 as the bright morning star. Or you could more loosely interpret it, though the word and is not in the original, the bright and morning star. It reads a little smoother. You know what a star is. Today, we refer to someone typically who is famous as a star. We speak of a star athlete or a rock star or a movie star. And the whole idea of a star being famous has its roots in scripture, as many expressions that we have today, all the way back in the book of Daniel chapter 12 when he speaks of faithful believers who share the gospel. They'll shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Not to mention the coming of the Messiah is associated with a star. Even the angels are called stars, according to Job. When the creation was made, the morning stars, meaning the angels, sang. Now, most of you know that there was one particular angel who's also called the star of the morning. Now, the King James doesn't interpret the Hebrew name. It just renders it Lucifer. But the word Lucifer in Isaiah 14 and verse 12 means the star of the morning. And of course, we studied the fall of Satan from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 when we're way back in Revelation 12. And we learned something in the New Testament that's not revealed in the Old Testament that when Satan rebelled, he took one-third of all the angels with him who today are demons. Now, the only time the title Morning Star appears in the Bible in reference to Jesus is right here in Revelation. What's the point? This is the end of time. The battle is over, very simple. Christ is won, Satan is lost. That's the promise of salvation. He is coming. And so, you know, you go to Israel today, and I'll usually take people there because I think it's a questionable spot. But what happens there is very affirming and that there's a spot, and they say, this is the tomb of King David. But the fact that they revere King David's tomb is because they recognize that through David's lineage is coming the Messiah himself. That's the promise. Beyond the promise, there's the plea of salvation. I'm actually almost done. Stay with me. The plea of salvation. Let's read the first part of verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, and the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Now, we would do well to yield to this one who comes from David's loins to wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. And you have a question. Some of you listening to me that you need to answer. Am I going to embrace the Lord Jesus as my king or not? The Spirit and the bride says, come. Now, I think this is fitting. Here we are at the end of Scripture. The final words that God ever wrote and recorded for man come here at the end of the Bible. And he wrote every single word, every single thought was inspired through the Holy Spirit. We have one book. 40-some authors, most of whom never met each other. They write over the course of 1,500 years. They live on three different continents. They write in three different languages. And when it's all brought together, there's one cohesive thread from Genesis to Revelation. Why? Because behind each human author, there is one divine author, God the Holy Spirit. And now God the Holy Spirit speaks. Now, we've seen him speak one other time. Hold your finger here for just a moment and turn back a few pages. Revelation 14. Revelation 14, and let's look at uh, verse 13. And what I find interesting, and here's the point I want to make, that in both instances, when the Spirit of God speaks, he says one word. And it's not by accident. Because he came, the scripture says Jesus said, not to exalt himself, but to exalt Christ. Look at 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes. It's his word. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Now remember, the Holy Spirit is addressing believers in this passage and so appropriately because it's the Spirit, of course, who convicted you before you were saved. He convicts you of your sin and shows you your need. He is the one, the moment you believe, who regenerates you He makes you a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who allows you to know God, not just in a historical way, but in a real way, that they may know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. He is the one, once you're saved, who teaches you. Yes, I can preach truth, but only the Spirit, our anointing, can impart that truth to you. He illumines the truth to you. He is the one who is your helper, who wants to strengthen you for the challenges of life. He is the one who gave you a spiritual gift so you can serve the body of Christ. He is the one who comforts you in all of your heartache. He is the one who seals you for the day of redemption. And when you finally die, He says, yes! Because his job and his work over you is completed. And of course, in verse 13, there's a strong contrast between the saints here who are described as having rest and the wicked whom the scripture says have no rest day or night in verse 11. They rest from their labors in what sense? When we get to heaven, is it some big rest home where we just sit around in a rocking chair? Not at all. He uses a specific word for rest that refers to the absence of strain and turmoil and heartache. It's a specific word that he uses. Listen, we will serve the Lord day and night in heaven, the Bible says. We will work. Our God is a working God. Work is not a result of the fall. What came as a result of the fall is how work now has to be carried out. And so in heaven, there's no more heartache, no more struggles, no more disappointments. No longer will there be any death, any mourning, any pain or crying. Why? Because all those things have passed away so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Remember, he's speaking in the context of tribulation saints, and their deeds follow them. Remember what these saints are like. Many are starved to death. Why are they starved to death? Because they refuse to identify with the antichrist and they can't buy or sell anything. Most of them have their heads cut off. And Jesus said they all would have died had not God cut those days short And so here are these people, the most hated, the most sought after believers in all of human history, constantly being chased down and God says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now we don't usually think of death as a blessing but it will be especially, I mean, we think maybe the terrorist thinks death is a blessing. You know, He takes out innocent people and he thinks he's got this big reward waiting for him according to the Quran. Or maybe the politician who advocates abortion, they argue death is a blessing because now your problem's gone. Or those who argue for euthanasia, now the person who's suffering, he's out of misery. But for most people, death is not a blessing. It's just the opposite. Yet for the believer, death is a blessing because to be absent from the body is just a change of address. You're home with the Lord. And there's no more persecution, especially for these who are in the summation of all of the Holocaust in human history brought together. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Now the wonderful, wonderful word is come to this one, this promised one, who is the root and the descendant of David. What an invitation God is giving. He's inviting you to the Savior. He's inviting you to eternal life. And remember, at this time in human history, people are going to be pouring over the book of Revelation. They're going to be reading this book like they've never read it before because many are going to find Jesus as Lord through it. And then once they find it, they're gonna say, well, the whole plan is here, what's next? Ooh, wow, that seal, ooh, that trumpet, ooh, that bowl. Wow, they're gonna be reading it. They're gonna be pouring through it. And so God cares, God has compassion. He's seeking after sinful fallen people who is the Spirit How does he work? And we are witnesses of these things, the apostles could say, and so is the Holy Spirit. Those apostles were saying, when I preach, I'm a witness, but so is the Holy Spirit a witness. So the Spirit says, come, and the bride says, come. Who's the bride? It's the body of Christ. Hey, look, when I preach, I would rather be dead than to come up into this pulpit and not to preach with God's spirit behind me, because it's meaningless. It's useless not to, pre- to preach in your own power, and it's useless for you as a believer who is called as the bride of Christ to go and tell, to try to do it in your own effort and in your own strength. One of the purposes a church exists is to evangelize. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I don't care how spiritual you may think you are, how many Bible studies you lead, how many organizations you are over. If you are not fishing for men, you're not following Christ. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so John says here, the Spirit and the bride say, come. There are two words that really summarize God's call. The first word is come, the second word is go. First, he invites you to himself, and then he sends you out to tell. Go and tell. And a church exists by evangelism, like a fire exists by burning. And if a church is not evangelizing, and by the church, I'm talking about us individually, brought together corporately, then we're not worth the real estate we sit on. And most churches, sad to say, are not evangelizing. And let the one who hears say come. So one man hears the invitation, he's converted, and what is he supposed to do as a new believer? Invite others to come. You see, it's just beautiful here. Let the one who hears say come. The Spirit says come. The saints who make up the body of Christ by the Spirit say come. And those who are forgiven and find new life, they in turn are to say come. That's God's last call in the Bible. And those who refuse his last call will only hear one word, depart. The Spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. It's a wonderful invitation, which brings me to my third and final point. Beyond the promise of salvation and the plea of salvation, there's the price of salvation. The price of salvation, verse 17, specifically says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life, how? Without cost. This is a wonderful promise. If you are thirsty, you may come and you may receive what's called here the water of life without cost. When my children were young and money was tight, we'd go into a restaurant when the, ma- when, the ma- when the waitress would come up to the table and ask us, what would you like? To-? I'd say, eight, eight waters all the way around. <laughs> and when we would go into a McDonald's, I'd say, oh, we'd like eight waters. Please, complimentary cups. Otherwise, they'd charge you a dime each. It was free. Well, even so, the scriptures make clear that the gift of eternal life is free. The water of life without cost. The New English Bible says, free of charge. The English Standard Version says, without price. The CSB says, as a gift. The scripture is clear that eternal life is free. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You've been saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works. And the price that has been paid though is not free. It costs God his own son's precious blood. And how foolish are people who drink from the world's wells and ignore the freedom for you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free and the new life that Jesus gives. And how foolish we can be as Christians if we get distracted and we let our heart drift into the world If any man is thirsty, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. How can God make your salvation so free? Because of the great exchange. He took him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus, who is sinless, the Father made him sin on our behalf. The sin of the world was laid on him. In his own body on the cross, he bore our sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Those are the robes we're speaking of today.
1: To listen again to today's study from Revelation 22, verses 16 to 17, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Today's message is entitled, God's Last Call to be Saved. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV71. Tomorrow we begin the next-to-last message in our study of the Revelation. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.